Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. With April more or less behind us, we're entering one of horror's favorite times of year. You've heard of Christmas in July? Well, this is more like Halloween in May. That's right, the annual Stoker Awards are just three weeks away, and the Horror Writers Association has been hard at work putting the finishing touches on the virtual StokerCon 2021. It looks like it's shaping up to be one hell of an event. As usual, there are some fantastic names on the ballot, including ones I'm sure you'll recognize from this show. This year, StokerCon will feature everything from virtual writing workshops to pitch sessions to the amazing Final Frame film competition which I have to admit I'm very much looking forward to. As usual, we'll feature as many of the short story Stoker nominees as we can get our claws on, which, in this case, unfortunately happens to be two, due to publication rights and all that jazz. Two killer stories that we can't wait to share with you, so look forward to that in the coming weeks. If you'd like to take part in the event yourself, which happens May 20th, you've still got some time to pick yourself up a ticket. Visit StokerCon2021.com to sign up, and while you're there, you can also get a peek at all the nominees and take a closer look at all of the dastardly fun StokerCon has in store this year. Again, that's StokerCon2021.com. 
Speaking of awards and nominations, I mentioned last week that we'll be hosting another contest coming up in May. This time, though, it's something a little different. Together with our friends at Tee Public, we're launching our first ever art contest. So, crack out your crayons, polish your pencils, and muster up your markers, because we want your most horrific, monstrous, and downright fun and frightening creations inspired by Tales to Terrify. Whether it's a character from your favorite story, or a nightmare conjured after late nights listening to the show, we want your creative horrors. So release them from the shackles of your mind and spill them out onto a t-shirt design. The winner will receive a custom swag pack put together by T Public, as well as bragging rights and a permanent spot for your creation on our store. We'll have more details in the weeks to come, including some more specific information on what and how to enter. So until then, stay tuned. Of course, if words aren't your preferred art form, this is your weekly reminder that Tales to Terrify is still open for submissions. Head to talestoterrify.com slash submissions for all the details you need to submit or find out more about what we're looking for. Lastly, before we move on, I wanted to give a final shout-out to the amazing listeners who've reviewed us through Reviews for Good on Podcatcher over the last several weeks. Your kind words and generous actions have not only warmed the blackened hearts of our staff, but truly helped to provide sustenance and support for those in need. I feel so proud and thankful that we've got such an amazing, kind, supportive community that backs this show. So, thank you. Our stop this week takes us to London, on the banks of the Thames River. No, not that London, and not that River Thames. We're in London, Ontario, to visit an old Georgian-style mansion known as Eldon House. Built in the early 1830s for John Harris, the treasurer of the District of London, Ontario, Eldon House was a social hub for the growing little community. A military garrison had been set up on the outskirts of the settlement and created a steady influx of soldiers and officers from England, and John Harris welcomed them into his home with open arms. Eldon House became known as a common place for officers to spend their downtime. They could come for a drink, have a bite to eat, and some friendly conversation. Of course, the fact that John Harris had seven daughters living at home couldn't have hurt the home's popularity with the local soldiers, either. It didn't take long before one of John's daughters had begun a relationship with one of the young officers. Sarah Harris and Lieutenant Wenmin Wyniat had been noticing each other for a while, and the young lieutenant spent most of his off-duty hours at Eldon House. It started off with shy glances and soon progressed into visits by the fireside or long walks together through the garden. It was the perfect time of year for falling in love. Warm days and cool nights, flowers just starting to blossom, 
and the romance between the two seemed to bloom stronger each day as well. Finally, on one of their wanders around the garden, Sarah mustered her courage and asked Wenman to the upcoming dance. Several times a year, John Harris would invite people from all over the town of London and the nearby garrison to Eldon House for a night of food, drink, music, and, of course, dancing. Wenman was ecstatic at the invitation. The day arrived, and Wenman could barely contain his excitement. Throughout the week, the dance was all he would talk about, and his friends at the barracks were plenty tired of it and ready for the whole thing to be over with. They poked him and teased him, getting him riled up, like good friends do. But with just hours to go before the event, the lieutenant's frenetic nervous energy was getting to be too much even for them. Go for a ride, one of them said. It'll do you some good. Burn off some of that energy. Wenman agreed. It would be a good idea. He needed to clear his head. So he saddled up and tore off toward the Thames River, a peaceful ride he'd often take when he needed some time and space to think. By quarter after seven, the party was already in full swing. Officers and townspeople mingled and chatted, sipped their drinks, and nibbled on delicate hors d'oeuvres. Sarah had been keeping her eyes peeled for Wenman since people had first begun to trickle into the party. She was sure he'd be one of the first to arrive. He'd seemed so eager and excited when she'd talked to him the day before. She'd even tucked a single rose into the buttonhole of his jacket as a token of her love and affection. He could return it to her the following night, she said. But now... More than an hour into the festivities, Wenman was nowhere in sight. Sarah did her best to converse politely with the other guests, all without taking her eyes off the front door. Heart-heavy, though, she eventually gave in and headed to the ballroom with the other guests. At a quarter past ten, Sarah was chatting with two young officers, Ensigns David Anderson and Robert Portal, when she noticed someone enter the room. It was Wenman. Tall and handsome, but not at all dressed for the occasion. He looked dirty and disheveled, as though he'd just been riding. His skin was pale, too, and he was soaking wet, hair hanging in dripping strings from his face. She didn't care how he looked, though. She was just happy he'd finally made it. Whatever had happened, she was sure he had a good reason for being so late. She caught his eye and with a brimming smile waved him over. Wenman stared directly at her, a hollow blank look in his eyes. Then, without a word or any kind of acknowledgement, he walked away toward the dining room. Well, she chuckled awkwardly to her companions, if that isn't the rudest man I've ever seen. If you'll excuse me, I have to go give him a piece of my mind. Doing her best to hide her hurt and embarrassment, she left the two officers and strode toward the dining room.
the room had been set with dishes and plates of food for the guests. But by that late hour, most of the visitors had already eaten their fill, and the large dining room was empty. Too empty. In fact, though she was sure she had been only steps behind him, Wenman was nowhere in sight. Sarah searched the room, and the rest of the house, too, queried the guests. But aside from herself and the two soldiers she'd been speaking with, no one had seen Wenman. Early the next morning, a local farmer rode into the garrison, leading a stray horse he'd found grazing on his property. From its tack, he'd quickly realized the horse belonged to the garrison, and the soldiers in the garrison immediately knew who had last ridden it. All day they searched the fields and riverbanks around London for the missing soldier, but it wasn't until the following day that someone spotted Wenman's corpse, face down in the sand and mud of the river, a red rose still peeking from the buttonhole of his jacket. Whether he had fallen or been thrown from the horse wasn't clear, but Wenman had never made it back from his afternoon ride, had never made it to the party. His watch, though, which they found intact, had stopped at quarter past ten, the exact time he'd walked into the busy ballroom of Eldon House one last time. We have one story for you this evening, which comes from Sarah Hans. Sarah Hans is an award-winning writer, editor, and teacher. Her short stories have appeared in over 20 publications, but she's best known for the multicultural steampunk anthology Steampunk World, which appeared on io9, Boing Boing, Entertainment Weekly Online, and Humble Bundle, and also won the 2015 Steampunk Chronicle Reader's Choice Award for Best Fiction. You can read more of Sarah's short stories in the collection Dead Girls Don't Love, published by Dragon's Roost Press. Children of the Night, join me for Sarah Hans' When the Stars Are Right, first published in Eldritch Embraces, Putting the Love Back in Lovecraft, February 2016. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. After flying for nearly 24 hours, I shuffled out of the single-engine plane, unsure of the time, the day, or my location. I'm not sure I could have even told you my name, and it's a miracle my lone bag was still clutched in my pale, clammy hand. I patted my pocket, finding comfort in the soft sound of paper crumpling, reassuring me the letter I'd carried thousands of miles had not been lost. Cyrillic script slouched across the tower of the airport. A young man stood on the tarmac. I'm Arthur Good, I croaked, my throat dry. Are you my guide? The stranger nodded, smiling without showing his teeth. He was nearly a full head shorter than I, with dark hair and warm brown skin. His square jaw and high cheekbones made him effortlessly handsome, but his most striking feature was the amber-gold color of his eyes. They were the eyes of an otherworldly creature in a human face. Welcome to Zabrezny, Mr. Good, he said in lilting English, all rolling R's, and vowels so rich they practically dripped. I'm Stepan Smirnov. Please, call me Arthur, or Arthur, I suppose. Stepan's smile broadened and his posture relaxed. Glad to meet you, Arthur. He reached over with familiar ease and pried my fingers from the handle of my suitcase. I groaned, my fingers stiff from clutching the bag in my lap for several terrifying hours. Stepan hepted the bag and gestured for me to follow him, taking off towards the parking lot at a trot. His quick, strong, young body made me feel sad and jealous and warm with desire all at once. He led me to a silver sedan parked in front of the airport in a space that was definitely not legal. My guide looked pleased when I elected to sit in the front passenger seat instead of the back. So, what part of America are you from? He turned the key in the ignition and the engine hummed to life. I struggled to buckle my seatbelt with aching fingers. Michigan, what part of Russia are you from? Moscow. But I went to boarding school in England. That's why I speak very good English. 
The car leapt away from the curb and charged onto the street. I was surprised to see quite a bit of traffic zipping about the road. Zabrozny was not a small town as I'd expected, despite its location far north of any major city and the tiny size of its airport. You probably speak better English than I do, if you are educated in the motherland. I gripped my seatbelt to keep myself from pying at the dashboard. Ha! <laughs> motherland, I like that. The car swerved around a truck, Step and twisted the wheel sharply to avoid another sedan. I gasped and clutched at my seat in a very undignified fashion. Stepan chortled with amusement and reached over to pat my knee tenderly. Was it my imagination, or did his hand linger on my leg just a moment longer than necessary? Driving in Russia is very different from driving in America, but I've been doing it for years. You just leave it to Stefan. I really didn't have much of a choice but to leave it to Stepan. I closed my eyes and forced my clenched muscles to relax, letting out a long, slow breath. When I opened my eyes, the edges of my vision were fuzzy. Pulling off my glasses, I squeezed my eyes shut again and pinched the bridge of my nose. Are you all right, Arthur? Stepan's words were like broken glass being shoved in my ears. I'm getting a migraine. I must have forgotten to take my medicine on the plane with the time change. My skull was full of pressure, and my eyeballs wanted to explode from their socket. Where's the medicine? My bag, in the back seat. I expected to feel the car breaking and pulling onto the curb, but instead I felt Stepan's hand snaking into the back seat to grab the bag while the car continued to hurtle down the freeway. He pulled the bag between the seat and dropped it in my lap. I heard the zipper open and the rustle of his hand digging through the bag's contents, and then, finally, with the sweet chime of pills clacking in a plastic bottle. How many? he asked. Just one. I held up my palm when he dropped a single pill into it. He folded my fingers over the capsule, the gesture once again considerate, tender the press of skin becoming a soft brush as he released my hand. The car jerked and swerved. Stepan shouted something in Russian, and a car horn blared. Here, Stepan said, and I felt the smooth, rounded plastic of a water bottle against my fingers. I tossed the pill into my mouth and followed it with a gulp from the water bottle. I was expecting lukewarm tap water in all its slightly metallic, inoffensive glory, but instead... I got a mouthful of something vile. It burned its way down my throat as I swallowed reflexively. <laughs> what was that? I demanded, opening my eyes to inspect the bottle. The contents were clear, a little too clear for water. Stefan laughed and grinned. He clapped me on the back and then snatched the bottle from me to take a swig. Welcome to Russia, my friend. One of the better side effects of the migraine meds is drowsiness. Once they were combined with the constant growl of the engine and the gentle rocking motion of the moving car, I found myself in a dozing state, sort of half awake and half asleep for hours. As usual, I dreamed of nightmarish landscapes, twisted trees with screaming faces, a bloody sky that boiled and oozed, and familiar black creatures dancing around a pink spire. Their sleek bodies shifted and oscillated, bone-armed like appendages waving and thrashing. 
Their feet pounded a timpani drum in my ears as lightning arced above, illuminating the scene in grotesque, oily light, casting shadows that called my name in thick, wretched voices. I jerked awake to find myself wrapped in a blanket. The road before us was swathed in twilight. Zabrosny was somewhere behind us. The radio played softly, and Stepan hummed along to the hair-bald ballad, something I recognized, but couldn't name. Good morning, sleeping beauty, Stepan smiled down at me. We're about an hour from our lodging. Do you need me to drive? I rubbed sleep from my eyes. Stepan shrugged. If you drive, what do I get paid for? I like driving anyway. How's your head? Much better, thank you. My skull felt empty, like it would whistle if someone blew in my ear. Those pills knocked you right out. I'll need to get some for my next party. You were talking in your sleep, you know. I felt myself turn red. I do that sometimes. The pond's mien became serious. It wasn't in English, though. I shivered, remembering the shadowy forms chanting their oozing voices. In Russian? Stepan shook his head. I speak four languages, and it wasn't one of the ones I know. Do you speak four languages? The serious moment was shattered by Stepan's hearty bark of laughter. Don't sound so surprised. I speak English, Russian, French, and German. I would like to speak more, but who has time for learning when there are Americans to schlep around, eh? He grinned at me again, no white teeth and good humor. My fear of the dream creatures melted away under Stepan's huge, friendly grin and warm, golden gaze. My heartbeat quickened, and I looked out the window. I'm not so talented with languages. I only speak English. Mathematics are more my speed. And I can barely add two and two. Together, we are the perfect team. I had to laugh at that. I guess we would be. An hour later, we were pulled into the driveway of a lodge built in log cabin style. Stepan unloaded our suitcases and carried them to our rooms. My bedroom featured a four-poster bed and a large bathroom with marble countertops and a shower big enough for four people. Stepan introduced me to the lodge's matron, a small woman with silver hair and a quick, nervous smile. She made us an adequate dinner, spaghetti and meatballs, because the agency had told her an American was coming, and then, after showing Stepan where the booze was stored, retired to her own cabin. There's a hot tub, you know, Stepan said, grabbing a bottle of vodka and two glasses. I'm afraid I didn't bring any swim trunks, I replied. He leveled me with a playfully stern look. Why would you need swim trunks? It's a Tuesday. We're the only people here... You think Mrs. Ivanov is going to be offended? Please, she's on her fourth husband. Stepan marched out of the lodge's back door and down the stone steps to the hot tub. I watched from the window as he placed the bottle and glasses by the square shape in the ground, and then folded back the metal cover to reveal the largest whirlpool I'd ever seen. It would have fit at least twenty people, and it was lit from within by lights that changed from blue to green. It looked like a mermaid's underground garlo. Stepan stripped off his clothes in a second. His naked body was only slightly paler than his arms, legs, and face, still a warm, toddy brown, 
He had a firm, round ass. Retrieving the vodka, he turned so that he was facing the window, showing off all his goods, and waved at me with his free hand. Heat rushed up my neck to my face. I gaped at him as he turned and climbed into the hot tub, all inhibitions apparently shed with his clothes. Or maybe Stepan never had possessed inhibitions at all. I remembered the touch of Stepan's hand on my knee, his fingers closing over mine, the radiance of the smile he kept turning to me in the car. Was I reading too much into this? Was he just a flirt? We had two more days in the car together to look forward to, and that could get really awkward if I were misreading his intentions. But I hadn't had a night of fun, the kind where I really relaxed and enjoyed another person's company in a long time. Too busy with math and migraines. And what else was there to do in the Russian countryside two days' drive from our destination? A few minutes later, I shed my clothes under Stefan's unflinching stare and joined him with a bottle of Bordeaux I'd found at the back of the bar. The air was cold, but the whirlpool was hot and delightfully bubbly. Vodka not good enough for you? Stepan teased. I poured wine into the glass he offered me. I prefer wine, I'm afraid. Stepan splashed water at me. Are you sure you're Russian? That's what my birth certificate says, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Arthur from Triska. I swallowed a huge gulp of Bordeaux. The wine tingled its way down my throat and into my stomach, where its effects spread to my limbs, hurried by the hot water, filling me with a languorous lightness. I relaxed into the water, letting go of my self-conscious concerns about being too old, too pale, and too skinny for the gorgeous young man who shared the water with me. I leaned back and gazed up at the dark sky twinkling with stars. What do you hope to find when you arrive in Trishka? Stepan asked. My birth parents, you know that. Stepan nodded and put aside his glass to drink directly from the vodka bottle. But what do you really hope to find? I blinked at him and then became very absorbed in my wine glass. I took a few more sips, letting the wine work its magic on my inhibitions before I spoke. The migraines are debilitating, and the doctors don't know what causes them and can't stop them. I've never met anyone who has them like I do. I can't work. I can't maintain relationships. I can't do anything because I spend so much time of my day either in agony or asleep. I spent the last of my savings to come here in the hopes that someone will be able to help me. Maybe I can find a kindred spirit or some family lore that will help me find a cure. Stepan narrowed his eyes at me. You're hoping for a miracle. Yes, a miracle. I know it's a long shot, but I'm desperate. He said nothing for a few long moments, and I felt the heat of an embarrassed blush creeping its way up my face. The hot water was suddenly boiling, and dizziness started to overtake me as my blood pressure rose. I placed my glass on the edge of the hot tub and moved for the stairs. This was a mistake, I mumbled. The pond moved quickly as a snake across the water and his hand closed around mine. His grip was strong and so sure, so certain, that I turned to him, startled. 
His face was very close, those yellow-gold eyes gazing into mine with a combination of compassion and lust with a twinkle of mischief. A sob hitched in my throat, and he kissed me. His lips were flavored like the sweet aftertaste of vodka. Stepan called to me from high atop the gleaming pink glass spire that always haunted my dreams. Below him, the dark creatures undulated and hissed. The air was acrid, thick with black smoke, choking me. Stepan and the glass spire were obscured by that smoke until all that remained were his eyes, glowing like baleful yellow twin suns. I woke sputtering and coughing, choking on my own phlegm. Sitting up, I gasped for air, my heart thundering so hard the blood pounded a painful drumbeat in my ears. Beside me, Stepan laid sprawled across his bed. I touched his hair, comforting myself that he was actually beside me and very real. Eventually, my heartbeat slowing, I slipped from the bed and crept out of Stepan's room and back to my own. For many long minutes, I sat on the edge of my empty bed and trembled. Then I fetched myself water from the bathroom tap. It smelled like rotten eggs, but tasted only faintly of sulfur, and downed a pill. I curled up on the mattress and willed myself to sleep so deeply I wouldn't dream of the strange landscapes and the logical monsters that usually assaulted my dreams. Stepan's hand on my shoulder roused me. Arthur, we should get on the road. It's nearly eight o'clock, and we have a long way to go. I waved him off. Tired. Let me sleep another hour. Did I wear you out that much, old man? His lip tickled my ears. Next time I will have to be gentler. I reached up and grabbed his hair, drawing his face down to mine to kiss him. Don't you dare. He laughed with a throaty, sexy sound that made my skin tingle. You can sleep in the car if you need. I don't mind, but we have to go. As I slid from the bed, Stepan handed me a neatly folded stack of warm clothes. We left them out by the hot tub overnight, so I washed them and dried them. Oh, God, Stepan, are you... are you a morning person? You can hardly talk. You're an American. Besides, I made breakfast. There's even bacon. If you don't want it, I can just leave it for Mrs. Ivanov. No, no, I take it back. My stomach gurgled. That's a compromise I can accept. Breakfast was bacon, toast, and scrambled eggs. If I'd had any doubt of what happened the night before was a fluke or just a meaningless hookup, it was washed away under Stepan's attentions at the breakfast table. He barely nibbled at his food. He seemed to take more pleasure in watching me eat than he did in eating himself. He kept asking if I wanted another drink, salt or hot sauce for my eggs, more jam for my toast. You know I'm not going anywhere, right? I asked. He nodded and cleared our plates, pointedly not meeting my eyes. Your return ticket doesn't take you home for another two weeks. I'm going to put the suitcases in the car. I finished my breakfast and followed him, wondering about that last remark. Stepan liked to sing along to the radio, so he drove for some time listening to music. Lost in thought, I found myself pulling the letter from my pocket and smoothing it against my leg, my hand tracing the familiar folds on the paper. What's that? Stepan asked. This? No, 
It's a letter from my mother telling me I'm adopted. She told you by letter? His voice was sharp with disapproval. She wrote it years ago, but it was kept in a safe deposit box for a long time. We were estranged. My aunt sent it to me after my mom died last year. My index finger followed the ridge across the paper, swiping back and forth, back and forth. Estrange. I don't know that word. It means she disowned me, and we didn't talk anymore. She didn't approve of my lifestyle. Oh, that I can understand. My mother wants me to get married and have babies with a fat Russian woman. I can't bear her disappointment, so we don't talk much anymore. I didn't reply to that. It was too familiar tale that didn't bear relating all the details. Clumsily, I tried to change the subject. That lodge was nicer than I was expecting. I don't suppose there's another on this route. Stepan shifted in his seat. By tonight, we'll be far from any lodges or hotels. Triska has been abandoned for many years, so there's not much in the surrounding countryside. My stomach plummeted to my feet. We won't be camping, will we? He chuckled. I found a farmhouse where we can stay. We'll have to share a bed, though. And last night, he trailed off, his eyes shadowed with doubt. I reached across the center console and laid my hand over the his on the steering wheel. I didn't stay in your bed last night because of the nightmares, Stepan. I didn't want to keep you awake all night. Stepan smiled, but it was tight, more like a quick pursing of his lips, and he wouldn't look at me his eyes studying the road with unusual focus. I racked my brain for something I could say to make him feel better, but exhaustion swept up over me and shadows encroached on the edges of the world. I pulled the pill bottle from my pocket and downed one dry. Snuggling into the blanket that smelled faintly of Stepan's cologne, I let sleep swallow me whole. My dreams featured the usual surreal, terrible vistas, but the creatures that lurked in the darkest corners of my psyche drawled their hideous incantations in Russian. Their eyes were glowing amber orbs, their hands curled into menacing claws. They danced with impossible, unnatural gyrations beneath the pink spire, urging me to join their hellish frolic. They shrieked my name with Stepan's voice. Flailing, I forced myself awake and found myself in a motionless car. Stepan sat beside me, his hands brushing the hair back from my face, calling my name in his gentle voice. I gulped air and groaned. A few tears burned their way from my eyes. Stepan sighed. I'm sorry I was angry before. I understand now why you didn't want me to share your bed. I reached up and gripped his wrist, meeting his eyes with mine. It's better now that you're here, I don't have to wake up alone. He smiled, his eyes like glittering amber jewels, like shining golden coins. I'm sorry you have such terrible dreams. Have you always had them? My whole life, I admitted. What do you dream about? He shook his head. That was an insensitive question, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It would be good to talk about it. I dream about this pink tower. It's made of glass, and it shines. At the base of it, there are these shadow monster things. 
They're drumming and dancing and chanting, and it's very loud. Sometimes there's smoke, like car exhaust, only thicker and burning the back of my throat. Every time the same dream? Stepan's dark brows drew together in concern. I nodded. My babushka used to say that if you have a dream more than twice, it was bound to come true. What if you've had the same dream your whole life? Stepan didn't answer right away. Then he said, I'm not sure my babushka really knew anything. I had a dream about my teeth falling out probably fifty times at university, and they're still there. I laughed, and gorgeous. He kissed me, a soft press of his lips against mine, then leaned back into his seat, as if satisfied that I wasn't going to disappear if he moved away. You were shouting in that language, you know, the one I don't recognize. What was I shouting? I winced as I sat up. I'd scrunched way down in the passenger seat in my sleep, and my back hurt with a dull pain that promised to be worse later. We were parked in front of a charming brick farmhouse. The sun had nearly set, and the sky was navy, speckled with bright stars. I don't know. I told you. I don't speak that language. But what did I say? Do you remember the sounds? What does it matter? He frowned. I just... Humor me, Stepan. Do you remember? Stepan's jaw clenched. Yes, I remember. You were chanting it for half an hour before I woke you. Say it. I need to hear it. He licked his lips, and then, in a very low, very monotonous voice, he said, Fyg, Nagli, Mugloal, Nagaf, Nilatharlap, Triska, Waga, Nagal, Fagtan. A thrill of fear made every nerve ending in my body feel like it was on fire. Are you sure? He narrowed his eyes at me. Have you heard it before? Yes, I gasped. Is what the monsters say in my nightmare. What does it mean? A tear leaked from my eye and dripped down my cheek. In his house in Triska, dead Nyarlathep waits dreaming. I thought you only spoke English. I do only speak English. I can't explain how I know what it means. I just do. Stefan placed his hands on the steering wheel and leaned his forehead against them. You don't want to go to Triska because of the migraines, do you? No, bile burned in my throat. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to deceive you. I didn't know how to explain my reasons without sounding crazy. Stepan's lips became a thin, disapproving line. But then his tawny gaze flicked to me, and he smiled sorrowfully. I understand. I probably would have thought you were crazy. Who goes all the way to a village in Russia for a dream? I breathed a heavy sigh of relief. Thank you for understanding. So, who is this Narukathep? A question caught me off guard. I looked down at my hands, studying the lines in my palm. I'd never discussed this with anyone before, except therapists who put me on increasing dosage of antipsychotic. No one knows, and there is very little written about him, some ancient god or another. But when I saw my Russian birth certificate and that I was born in a town called Triska, I thought, what if the dreams are memories? 
If I go back there, maybe I can remember. Maybe I can stop the dreams, and who knows, maybe the migraines, too. You think you're remembering a pink tower in the middle of the Russian tundra, with monsters dancing around it. I chortled, the sound harsh and grating in the quiet. It sounds silly when you put it like that. No, I think I'm misremembering. I was very young when I was adopted. I must have seen something when I was a baby that impressed itself onto my memory. The nightmares are me trying to make sense of it. Stepan nodded and then lifted his chin in the direction of the road behind us. We're only a few miles from Triska now. In the morning, you will have your answers. But, Arthur, I have to ask. Are you sure you want those answers? What do you mean? Why wouldn't I? Because whatever you saw when you were young was big and crazy enough to impress itself on a baby's memory. The heat drained from my face. A ball of cold dread formed in my stomach like a frozen stone. I know. The farmhouse's owner was a smarthy man who eyed us with suspicion at first. He finally showed us to his spare room once Stepan handed him a thick wad of colorful Russian currency. He fed us beef stew with a dense rye-like black bread for dinner, and then Stepan and I retired to our room. We played cards and drank vodka for an hour, laughing and making small talk, before eventually tumbling into bed. By unspoken accord, we bent back our sighs and moans, making love in silence so as not to disturb our host. Stepan tried his utmost to bring me to such heights of pleasure that I would break the quiet, but never succeeded. We collapsed into a sweaty tangle of limbs in the wee hours of the morning. Are you sure you don't want me to go sleep in the car? I thrash around pretty bad when I have nightmares, I warned. Stepan held out his arms. Do your worst, moy Amerikansky. What does that mean? I tucked myself in beside him. He snorted, wrapping his arms around me. You really are bad at languages. It means my American. My heart clenched tight in my chest, and I took a long, shuddering breath. You're American? He nestled in against me, pressing the warm length of his body against mine. His breath stirred my hair and made me shiver as he whispered, For as long as you want to be. Sleep was like a velvet cloak wrapping around me, warm and soft, sucking me down into a dreamless stupor. When I awoke, Stepan was not in bed beside me. I sat up and stretched. As the fog of sleep receded, I became aware the room wasn't as it had been the night before. The chair in the corner was tipped over. Both the paintings that had been on the wall were now on the floor. Frames cracked. I scowled at them, certain our lovemaking hadn't been that vigorous. Then my eyes found Stepan's single shoe, upside down beside the door, and somehow I knew he was gone. For a moment I thought perhaps he had left of his own volition, but then why would the room be ransacked? And then I knew, with a hot lance of terror through my chest, that he'd been taken. My gaze was drawn to something on the ceiling, a smear of rust brown. It was a single word, 
the Cyrillic letters hastily painted, probably by fingers, in the dark. The arrangement of the letters was familiar. Holding my breath, I found my jeans on the floor and pulled out the letter with my birth certificate still attached. I unfolded the certificate and held it up to compare the symbols written on the paper with the word painted on the ceiling. Triska. A sob tore its way from my mouth. I sat crying and gasping for a few moments, trying to comprehend what was happening. Stepan's clothes were still scattered about the floor. Someone had abducted him from bed, naked and unarmed, and now they were trying to lure me to the town of my birth. I was going there anyway, so why would they take Stepan to drive me there? My first instinct was to contact the authorities for help. Without Stepan to translate for me, that would be difficult, but not impossible. I pulled on my jeans and rushed, barefoot and shirtless, downstairs to find our host. The front door stood open, letting a breeze that froze chill bumps on my naked arms. An unmoving body lay draped across the threshold, face down on the floor, propping open the door. A pool of blood surrounded the body and I stopped my feet just in time to prevent myself from stepping in it. The smell of blood hit me, and I vomited onto the floor beside the body, heaving so hard my eyes filled with stars. As my vision cleared, I tried to piece together what had happened last night while I slept. The farmer had been killed by the same people who abducted Stepan, which meant that I didn't have time to call for help. I needed to get to Triska. I raced back upstairs and dressed, throwing both my clothes and Stepan's into our bags. Thankfully, the car keys were still in Stepan's pocket. I used the back door to escape the house instead of stepping over the farmer's course, trying not to look at the body as I snuck away, holding my breath to block out the smell. My ears rang with a high-pitched whine and my vision narrowed to a bright tunnel while I threw our bags into the sedan's back seat and slid behind the wheel. Now was not the time for a migraine, but no doubt had been brought on by the stress. I took a few deep breaths, trying to calm myself, but my blood continued to beat in my ears. I eyed my bag. I could take a pill and stop the freight train that was about to bear down on my brain. But then I wouldn't be able to drive myself to Triska. It would be risky enough driving with a migraine dulling my senses, but it would be impossible if I were drugged. The thought of escaping this horror was tempting, but if I took a pill, I would merely be dragging myself from the hell of reality to the hell of my nightmares, and I would doom Stepan in the process. I pulled the map from the glove box and charted the route to Triska. Hours later, I spotted the squat industrial buildings of the abandoned town and wept with relief. They were painted in bright, friendly colors, but even from a distance I could tell the paint was faded and peeling. The road sign announcing Triska was rusted and overgrown with vines. Stray dogs dashed from the street as I drove into town. My head felt like it was stuffed with angry hornets. The mountains in the distance pulsed with each beat of my heart, and the road writhed and lashed like the tail of an angry snake. The sun was too bright, the shadows too dark, the baying of dogs in the distance like knives to my eardrums. As I drove through town, I looked for any signs of human habitation. I rolled the window down and called for Stepan, hoping he would hear my voice and respond. 
I was answered by howling dogs and cackling crows, and my own voice reverberating off the abandoned buildings. My head pounding, my hopes of finding Stepan sinking, I eventually abandoned the car to walk the streets, calling for Stepan in a voice becoming weaker and hoarser with each passing minute. The sun was already low on the horizon. It seemed too early for the mantle of evening to settle over the land. But I reminded myself that this was Russia. I was very far north, further than I'd ever been in my life. Something flashed in my vision, and I looked up to find the mountains gleaming pink and orange in the sunset. My breath caught. Was this the pink spire from my vision? The mountains wavered before me, my vision narrowing from a tunnel to a pinpoint. The migraine was finally taking my sight. I sank to my knees in the street. The breeze ruffled my hair, and somewhere nearby a dog yipped. I closed my eyes and put my head in my hands. Stepan was lost to me. I would probably die here, in Triska, ripped apart by wild dogs. A strangled scream cut through the rushing blood in my ears. I lifted my head and blinked my eyes, willing myself to see. My vision cleared for a few seconds and then blacked out again. Applying all my willpower, I managed to see in spurts and starts. The pain was excruciating each time my vision returned, but I staggered to my feet and followed the scream, stumbling forward, running into walls and tripping over trash. The sky swirled with trails of every color, and the buildings of Trishka glowed like brightly colored lanterns. The ground pulsed and trembled, throwing me to my knees again and again, each time the scream sounded, echoing off the abandoned buildings, and I wept and cursed but pulled myself to my feet and stumbled ever onward. Stepan was tied in the town square, surrounded by people in long black cloaks with hoods. They chanted in low, monotonous voices, the sound just audible under Stepan's screams. One of them gripped a long knife and used it to score Stepan's chest with slow, agonizing strokes, leaving his flesh flayed and bloody. Above them, the sky was like boiling paint, glowing and scintillating with color. I rushed forward, aiming to snatch the knife from the hand that tortured my lover, but my vision blinked in and out. The cultist closed around me, grabbing my arms and holding me back. Stepan! I screamed, struggling weakly against the strong hands that gripped me. Arter, Stepan whimpered, and then he gasped and gurgled. My vision returned for a fraction of a second, just long enough to see the slash of red across his throat, his golden eyes rolling back as his lifeblood plored from the wound and down his flayed torso. Rage and sorrow coursed through me, my senses filled with the sound of chanting, the smell of blood, the flickers and flashes of the colorful lights in the sky. And then my whole world was agony, like my brain was on fire. To cope with the pain, I disassociated and watched myself from above. Arthur Good writhed and thrashed on the ground below me, surrounded by chanting cultists. And then his body, began to change, to expand, to undulate and pulse like the lights in the sky. His arms elongated, his face melted, and his human skin peeled away like a molting spider's exoskeleton to reveal an infinite darkness. I knew, then, what the cultist chanted. It was my name, 
Naira will accept. With that knowledge came the knowledge of a thousand eons. I knew the names of every star and every dark god who resided upon them. I knew every name I'd been given for millions of years on a thousand worlds, and I knew where the edge of the universe unraveled into nothingness. The cultist looked up at me with eyes glittering triumphantly, but all I could see was Stepan's tortured corpse. I opened my mouth, and it became a void, and each of the cultists were sucked screaming into the darkness. Silence settled over the town square, the lights above us dimming as if recoiling from my terrible power. With a gesture, I repaired Stepan's tormented flesh and released him from his bonds. With a thought, I drew his soul from the abyss and returned it to his body. His eyelids fluttered open, and he gaped at me, I could see an amber-gold version of myself reflected in his eyes, the black hole of my mouth, the boneless motion of my limbs, the countless eyes that covered my inky flesh. I shrank down to human size. Now that you've seen my true form, will you run? Stepan eyed me cautiously. Are you still Arter? I am Nairothap, he of many eyes, the crawling chaos, the outer god, trapped in human form for forty-six years in an attempt to prevent my inevitable supremacy. He blinked, and tears glittered in his eyes. But are you still Arter? I rearranged myself into the shape of the human called Arter Good. I am Arthur Good, and so much more. So will you run? Or will you rule by my side the beloved of this world's dark god? Stepan reached up and cupped my jaw with his warm hand. I would never leave you, Moya Marikonsky. I enclosed Stepan in my embrace and breathed the scent of his skin. Where shall we go, my beloved? All of time and space is our playground. Stepan clapped my hand in his. I've never been to America. I want to see your family. I want to see where you were raised. I chortled. All of time and space, and you want to go to Michigan? Stepan grinned up at me, amber eyes flashing. You heard me. Why are we still standing here, Mr. All-Powerful Outer God? Let's go. And we did. That was Sarah Hans' When the Stars Are Right, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible 
by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put a smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can share your love of the show out in the world, too, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy, custom, and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we summon cosmic horrors with more Tales to Terrify. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 